And turning in my Bible to Isaiah chapter 29, you've already had it read for you. You know, there's parts of the Bible, we're, we're in this series, and it's really a discipline for Tim and I. I mean, let me be clear, there are easy passages of, of Scripture to kind of teach, to walk through in, in uh, a Sunday morning experience like this, and then there are these passages that are really difficult, but they're still there, right? Just because we shut the book and walk away doesn't mean they're not there. And Isaiah 29 is one of those passages. Now, there are 15 writing prophets in the Old Testament. There are many more than that. There are many more people who hold or held the office of prophet. But Isaiah is one of 15 writing prophets. And the job of a prophet is not a fun job. In fact, one of the things you see about prophets is whenever God comes to them and says, hey, would you please be a prophet? I have a, I have a mission for you. Will you uh, send this message to such and such a group of people? They most often say, not me, Lord, please, someone else. I would rather go anywhere else, do anything else. I would rather grow wheat the rest of my life. Please don't make me do this. That is the standard reply of every prophet because it's not a fun job. And so what you read this morning is not just not fun for you. It wasn't fun for them. In fact, there's one prophet, Jonah, who gets told to do the, give this message to a group of people called the Assyrians, and he decides to get in a boat, and, and God tells him to go east, and he goes directly west, okay, immediately until a shipwreck messes or a, a storm catches him, and then they throw him overboard and a fish has to eat him. Have you heard this story? You probably have caught that one, okay? That's one of the prophets. There's 15 of them, okay? And all of them are unhappy about what they have to do. And yet God in his love gives us these people because they are the prophets. It is the prophets whose job is to see where our culture is going wrong, see where their culture is going wrong, and intercept it and say, hey, listen, you're on uh, track to really blow it in life, and we want to catch you before you get there. Okay, so what you read is a mid-course dialogue between one of God's prophets in the, in the chapter of Isaiah 29, and, and it's a mid-course dialogue, God telling these people, listen, please understand, you need to turn around now because where you're headed is going to lead you into destruction. It's going to hurt you badly. So if that didn't sound like fun, nobody ever likes to be told that sort of message, right? We don't like this sort of message, and yet it might be good for us. When I was a kid, I grew up in a church, uh, a Baptist church, and I remember that, you know, not very dissimilar to Parker Ford Church, the most fun thing to do after the service was over, the junior church leaders released me, and I would run out. I was probably six or seven years of age. My friend Troy and I, we would run all over the church, and we had this pretty large building with all these different Sunday school rooms, and it was tag or hide-and-go-seek or any number of different games, but at the end of the day, it was always one person running and the other person chasing them, right? Sometimes it was the girls chasing the boys. Sometimes it was the boys chasing the girls. You know, it, it had various variations, but I still remember running down the center, and we don't even have a center aisle in this church, but I remember running down the center aisle of the church and running around the altar. We had this big ramped up platform and running up in the platform and running around the altar like this. And my friend Troy, who I was trying to catch, is out in front of me. And I'm and Troy was pretty quick. He went on to be a really good athlete in high school. And uh, we were going around and around and around. And I remember going around one more time and this hand reached out and grabbed my shoulder. And my body kept going like this, and my shoulder stayed back there like that. You know, you, you follow what happened. And one of the deacons in our church said, you are running in God's house. You are running in God's house. And I, I, 
I, I looked around and I was like, I wasn't running alone. Where's Troy? And Troy was long gone. He had the gift of evaporation. He just dissipated into thin air. And I was alone there with the deacon. And the deacon was looking at me like, you are, and I, I don't think I'd ever seen this guy smile. You know, my recollection of him in elementary school was like, he was truly a terrifying individual in our church. And he had me by the shoulder and he was saying, this is God's house. Now, I'm 35 years of age. It's been about 30 years since that story took place. And if I had to go back, and if I, if I could have my education now and my life experience now and all of what I've seen and happen in churches, I would love to go back and talk to that deacon because I would love to point out the people who were gossiping in the church foyer that day. I would love to point out the fact that maybe God gets more smiles from little kids running around than he does austere grimaces, you know, from people who think they're righteous and holy and all that. I would love to correct him and tell him, listen, I never saw you smile. Where's the love of God in your life? I would love to tell him, I knew his son, I would love to tell him, please, just tell your son once before you die that you love him because that man died and I heard from his son. He never heard it in his whole life. The stuff that happens in church the stuff that happens in church around the subject of worship, which we're supposed to, you know, we, we go off and worship and sing together and we have a great morning and it's wonderful. But this worship experience, you know, what it centered around when I was a kid was this terrible experience where you kind of said, if you didn't smile, you were more holy. That's not actually true. The question is, what's actually in our hearts, right? Now, Here's the thing. I can look back on my life and you can probably look back on your life and you can see that there are moments when you've honestly faked it with God, right? Don't tell me. I don't want to know. Don't nod your head. Don't raise your hand. If you want to, that's by Oh, Nancy, thank you. Okay, we have one really messed up sinner in the back row. <laughs> and she's our church moderator. Yeah, um, she's wonderful. Okay, so we have messed up people in this church. And you know what? You and I have faked it periodically with God, right? And what that deacon was doing, I really think, I mean, I don't know what was in his heart, but what I expect when I get to heaven and I probably see this guy and we talk, he'll probably say, you know what, when I met Jesus, I realized I was faking it back there. I thought it was more important that people stopped running in God's auditorium or God's house, as he put it, than it was that we actually have a meaningful conversation. I don't remember ever having a conversation as a young guy with this deacon in our church besides that one moment when he grabbed my shoulder and, you know, arrested my... Uh, attack on my friend Troy. This is a tragedy of sorts. When we fake it, when something in our heart, when, when there's nothing worshipful in our heart and our actions go out and look like they're worshipful, what happens coming out of church is truly the worst. In fact, I suspect that worship, if it doesn't happen, is better than worship faked. Okay? Let me say that again. I suspect that worship that isn't even occurring, if we just put down the instruments this morning, we all go away and just act like it would be better to do that than to come in here and fake it before the living God, to act like our hearts are bowing before him. I looked this past week over all of the different uh, words that are translated worship. And in fact, in the old King James Version, we don't even use that generally at Parker Ford Church, but in the old King James Version, the one that's been around for 300 years, or is it 400 years? This is an anniversary. Four, 400 years. Yeah, it's been around 400 years. The, the, it was translated 90 times. There's a word in the Bible that was translated 90 times worship. And every one of those words is the same. It's the word for bow down. You know, we tend to think of worshiping as, some of us think of it as praise and kind of clapping our hands with worship. Others of us think of that austere church environment that I'm describing in my youth. But what is it really? 
It means that our hearts are bowed before God. That something inside of us has looked at the living God of the universe and we're willing to take every arena of our life and we're willing to give it over to him. And whatever he says about it, listen, that's what I'm going to do. That's what I'm going to do. That is true worship. Bowing when we're singing, yes. Bowing on a Sunday morning and, and we come here and we decide to join in worship together. But also bowing on Tuesday at 3. Also bowing in our familial life and deciding God knows better how to lead a family. Uh, bowing when it comes to our finances. Bowing when it comes to all of the different things. Deciding that he knows better than us. And that is worship. Now, we're going to read this passage and I'm going to start us off with Isaiah 29, 1. And I'm just going to read it for you. Now, the thing you need to know about this passage is, and we're not going to get very far in it this morning. We've read as mu- a lot more than we're going to talk about. But the thing you need to know is when this prophet decides to give this kind of very difficult speech, he's trying to correct the worship of his time, he uses a word. And the first word, let me read it for you, is woe to you, Ariel. Woe. Woe. Now, that probably doesn't mean much to you. But, you know, in the ancient world, when you had someone who passed away, you had these people who were professional mourners. I have a daughter, a, a, a child, who is really, really gifted with her vocal cords, okay? And I often say to Shelby that when something bad happens, I say, listen, that kid could be a professional mourner. If we still had these people around, your job was just to wail as loud as you possibly could, to scream out, and you know, they, they hired these people. That was a paid position in the ancient world. Your loved one died. I, well, I've got laryngitis. We need that person to come over from the next town, and you need to just cry for about 36 hours straight, and then we'll all be good. And that's, that's true. That's how, worship, that's how funerals took place. This word woe is directly from that context. It's a funeral word. And when he says woe to Ariel, what he's saying is, I am proclaiming your funeral. It's not your lives that are over. It's actually your worship. Your worship is dying. In fact, maybe it's dead. And you before God, you've lost the heart of what this whole thing is about and you've missed it and you are dead inside. And he goes on, woe to you, Ariel. Now, I need to talk about that word, Ariel. You never see that word describing any group of people, any city, any geographic region in the Bible besides here. This is the only moment in the Bible it's used. And if you believe it or not, I read this without even putting it up. I'm very sorry. Woe to you, Ariel. Ariel, the city where David settled. And year to year... And let your cycle of festivals go on. You see this word Ariel appear. It's the only place it takes place in the Bible. And here's what it means. I'm going to show you a picture. You see that thing? What does it look like to you? It's kind of a grainy image. It's an altar. That's right. And the word Ariel is the word, the Hebrew word for altar hearth. If you went back to the ancient world and you were there in 730 BC when Isaiah wrote this prophecy, what you would see is this, but you would see it on a, on, a, on a daze, a big, gigantic platform, 50 feet by 60 feet wide, okay? So it would go 50 feet long, 60 feet wide, and it was 10 feet up, and you had to climb this gigantic stair to get to it. And on the very top, this is what you'd see, a very large altar, and they burned stuff up on this thing. And the altar hearth is the thing below it, the place where the ashes fall, Okay? So if you know anything about the ancient world, you need to know that that Jerusalem is the place where people came to worship God. This was the center of God worship according to what the Bible tells us. And in the worship of God, you went to the temple of God, and then there were these kind of helpful 
furniture pieces that were there. There was this altar. There was another altar for incense. There was this gigantic thing called a sea with lots of water in it for washing things. There was a table for bread. There was a candelabra that you see all the time in Hanukkah season. And then there was this thing called the Ark of the Covenant where God was supposed to dwell. Now you could talk about any of this stuff and you could talk about the temple of God and you could talk about the city of God. This is where God was supposed to dwell. This is where his, his presence was supposed to be. But this writer uses a whole different word. It's almost as though he's making fun of or at least talking ironically about the people in the, first, in the 8th century BC saying, listen, you guys need to know that your worship is fake. Instead of talking about the temple in Jerusalem, instead of talking about the place where God dwelled, he talks about the place that collects the ashes. This doesn't sound fun, does it? It's a little scary. So imagine this. Tomorrow morning, we're going to come back in here, all of you. Okay, you agree to this? Nobody's agreeing. But I'll be here, okay? And when I get here, I'll tell you what I find. I find bulletins that you've forgotten and that I've forgotten, quite frankly. And I find the wrappers from those little mints that people at Parker Ford Church give out. I find a lot of those. And I find Kleenexes that are used, generally. Sometimes they're not used, but usually you can kind of look and see they're used. And I find some of your coffee coffee mugs or the, the little styrofoam and they have like this much coffee and some of you like cream so the cream has settled at the top you know what I'm saying and you see this cup with coffee and you see this cream kind of curdling at the top I'm never tempted to drink it I just find a place for it or the janitors find a place for it and they throw it away and I find somebody's sweater and I find two Bibles on average you know somebody left their Bible I put them in the lost and found sometimes I find glasses Every now and then I find shoes. Um, There's a variety of things that we find here on Monday morning after worship. They're the leftovers of worship, right? You know, the coffee doesn't say much about us worshiping God, does it? Right? That leftover coffee, it's cold and creamy and nasty. It doesn't say much about worshiping God. Even the shoes, you know, oh, who cares? The Bible, they're closed and left over. This stuff isn't stuff that has to do with worshiping God. It's just the leftovers, And when this prophet says, listen, I'm going to talk to you about what's going on in your life, I'm going to call you the leftovers of worship because you've missed the heart of it. It says that we're not going to talk about the sheep that are sacrificed. We're not going to talk about the Ark of the Covenant where God dwells. We're not going to talk about the music or the liturgy of worship. We're not going to talk about all the religious festivals. In fact, he says this line. He says, add year to year and let your cycle of festivals go on. Those are all of the different celebrations where they were supposed to worship God. Let me, let, you guys just keep doing this, but let me tell you that all that really is touching God is the ashes. It's dead. And this prophet is intercepting his people and he's saying, you walk into this temple and you worship me and you give your money and you do all this stuff, but it's really fake because what's in your heart is not love for God, not bowing before God, not in awe of the living God of the universe. Are we willing to seriously consider the fact that God has called us to love him? Let me fast forward a little bit. In fact, I'm going to fast forward 700 years This is a quote from Jesus. In Matthew chapter 15, Jesus comes across religious leaders just like the ones Isaiah might have seen eight centuries beforehand, okay? 
And he runs across these religious leaders and they come to him and they say, Jesus, I have this que- we have this question about you. Your disciples, they don't wash their hands right. Now, if you know anything about the Pharisees, that's this religious leaders who washed their hands. They, they, they were people who had rules around washing their hands. In fact, you had to dip your hands in these ceremonial tubs and barrels of like rainwater looking stuff. And you dip your hands in there and then you'd kind of do this until they were dry. And you had to make sure they were dry. And there was a certain number of times you had to wring them. And there was an angle at which your fingers had to hold because the water had to get off of it before you were actually clean. And they had rules to this extent. That they, literally, they had about 630-some odd rules. Can you imagine that? You're here for the first time. I don't know how many of you are here for the first time. I won't even ask you to raise your hand. But Parker Ford Church, what would you think if Parker Ford Church just handed you a rule book? Here it is, 635 rules on how to worship God. That's what these Pharisees said. And they come to Jesus and they say, listen, you're, you're, you're not actually worshiping God right. You're not actually worshiping God at all because you don't wash your hands. Your disciples, they don't wash their hands correctly. And Jesus says, are you kidding me? Really? It's about how we wash our hands? It's maybe in our day, it's about how we wear our shirt. It's about whether we wash our car before we go to church. It's about whether you get there more than once a month. It's about this. It's about, what is it about? What, what, what is the rule at Parker Ford Church? And you know there are some. You know you have a couple rules that say, this is what I would do. This is what worship of God looks like. And Jesus looks at these guys and says, you know what's more? You guys are fake. You'll split up all of your belongings to the point where you have an herb garden. You have this tiny little garden on the side of your house and it's got dill and cumin and all these little herbs. And you'll slice them up and you'll make sure you give the temple people the right amount of that stuff. But when your mom calls you and says, I need some help with some money, I don't have any money and I need help, you'll find a way to hide your funds from her, he says. And you'll try not to help your neighbor. You'll try to help, not even help your own mother. And you'll do it by saying, I'm going to worship God. Look, at, I'm such a great God worshiper. I don't actually care about my mom. I don't care about my neighbor. I don't care about anybody else. All I care about is God because I'm holy. And then he says this line. And you'll see at the bottom, I quoted this from Jesus. It's in Matthew chapter 15, verse 8, if you want to look it up. But I'm going to read from Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13. Because Jesus, when he goes to these Pharisees, quotes the very same passage we're reading from this morning. Isaiah is intercepting a group of people who are doing the wrong thing. And Jesus decides that that's the greatest place to quote from when he finds people who are doing exactly the same wrong thing. And so he, he, he uh, quotes this passage. I'll read it for you. These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. The worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. Are there rules to worship in your heart? Are there things that you think you have to look like, be, do? Is there a face you have to put on when you come here or when you go anywhere where you know there's going to be Christians? Or when you see somebody in one of the locations that you frequent and you see somebody that you would see here at church, are you always like, oh, no, don't let them see me? I was at the beach after annual conference. Yes, I went to the beach after annual conference with my wife and kids. We're on the beach, and I looked 20 yards down the beach, and the pastor from the next church over in our denomination is 20 yards away from us, 20 yards away. And he's from Royersford, Pennsylvania, and he's in Grand Haven, Michigan, my hometown. I wanted, Shelby said, why don't you, put, no, she did. It was your friend, Sherry, said, why don't you put a towel over your head and act like you're not here? <laughs> I said, well, he looks bad in his swimsuit too, you know? Anyway, but honestly, 
quite honestly, when it comes to worship of God, are there people you don't want to see in specific places? Are there people who you're afraid of what they're going to think of you? Are there things you do that you don't want anybody else to know? Are there things you're hiding? If so, this passage is for us. I'll say it in the first person because it's as much for me as it is for you. As I was preparing the sermon, I thought, oh my goodness, I don't want to talk about this. This makes me look bad. I'm a professional Christian. I mean, honestly, I'm paid to be a Christian. And some days you put a smile on your face because you see Mel Christman in the grocery store, you know? Shelby sent me to the grocery store one more time today, and here's Mel, and now I got a smile. Oh, man, you know? These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips. They smile, they say all the right words, but their hearts, where are their hearts? They're far from me. Jesus has a word that nobody else in the New Testament or old dares to use. And he uses it repeatedly. He uses it over and over again. You only find it in two books in the New Testament, Matthew and Luke. No other book of the Bible has this word in it, and no other person in the Bible dares to say it. It's so scary. In the ancient world, there's these people who are actors. They're, they're, people who are, they're, they're, they're the people you'd see in a theater in our world of today. They're people who can dramatize things and make you engage in a plot line, and they can, they can be this person or that person, and you kind of believe them. You become entertained by them. They were called Hippocrates. Sound familiar? Hippocrates in Greek. Let me put the English word up on the screen for you. Hypocrite. In Matthew chapter 15, what he says about these people just before he quotes Isaiah 29, 13 is, you guys are hypocrites. You're actors. You have 630 some rules to make sure you act the right way. You make sure you get someplace and do the right thing at the right time because other people are watching and because you need the drama. And the, the, the audience who you're playing up for, is it God? No, it's not God. It's the other people around you. You love your role in society. You love the way people look at you. You love to feel holy. You love the honor people give you in public. You love to look like a good guy. But the fact of the matter is you're just a pretender, an actor, a stage player, somebody who's just living the life of a hypocrite. I hate this passage because it asks me some questions about me. It asks why I do things, not just if I do them. It asks if my heart is inclined to the living God. It asks if I put one person in front of another because I think that person is a little easier to be around. Do I only value the people who are fun? or smell a certain way? Do I think that the people who are the least of these, the people who have kind of fallen through the cracks in society, you know, what about those people? Does God value those people? And do I value them in my heart the way God does? Because those are the signs of someone who worships God. Only Jesus dares use this word. Only Jesus dares in the New Testament to look at a group of people and say, listen, you guys are honestly actors. But every now and then when I read the New Testament, you know who I think he's talking about is me. Every now and then I think maybe my worship is just a bunch of ashes on an altar. It's not the real thing. I'm not actually offering any part of myself to God. All I'm offering to God is the leftovers because what I'm really doing when I offer anything at all is I'm offering it to everyone else who's watching and not actually to the God who most cares and most matters. 
The danger of worship in our lives, the danger of worship is that we will somehow institutionalize it, organize it, make sure there's a set time and day and an order and the praise team gets here at the right time and we don't take it home with us and we don't organize our lives around the fact that every part of our existence must be worshipful to the living God or else all of us are hypocrites. You know, when I was a kid, I remember telling my friends after that encounter with the deacon in my church, I remember saying to, to my friends, you know what, I hate church because I just hate hypocrites. I would say this. My dad was a pastor and I attended a church, whether I liked it or not, every Sunday. And yet I was well aware of the shortcomings of those people in the church. What was hardest for me was to realize that the, the, the passage we're talking about this morning wasn't talking about those other people who I could still tell you about who are hypocrites. I can pick the hypocrites out in any church foyer. I can see them. At some point in time, I realized that it was pointed at me. This passage asks us to believe in an actual altar. 17 or 12 years after that encounter with the deacon, I remember walking through church services after church services and hearing about Jesus and going, you know, people who follow, follow Jesus are all phonies. I mean, they honestly, they never live it out. They never do what they're supposed to. And frankly, I can tell you they didn't. Okay, the people I was surrounded by, many of them, like the people you've been surrounded by, like many of us actually probably are, if we're honest, were people who let me down. And so at 17 years of age, I remember the first moment when the living God kind of got a hold of me in this service where they said, listen, make your hand an altar. Maybe you're the hypocrite. Maybe you've talked about other people who are hypocrites, but maybe you need to offer up your life because in fact you are one. And there was this kind of nudge in my heart. I can't tell you how it happens. I didn't hear anything. We talked about that passage where the hand wrote on the wall in the Old Testament a few weeks ago. That didn't happen, you know. Nothing happened. I just got this nudge and I realized, you know who the hypocrite in this room was? And I was surrounded by about 900 people when this happened. You know who the hypocrite is? It's you. And I thought of myself and I realized my life was a pile of ashes offering nothing to the living God. That all my worship and all of the acts that I thought I was doing, they were really not acts at all that were for God. They were acts for other people. There's an author named Brenna Manning, and he wrote this line that I continue to believe is probably the most scathing line of any writer I've ever read. The world's greatest, the world's greatest cause of atheists, the, the greatest cause of atheists in the world today, I've got to make sure I get it right, is Christians who walk out the doors of a church and acknowledge Jesus with their lips, but not with their lives. How many people have looked at us and thought we were called to worship God, but not if it looks like that. And so Isaiah writes this line and he says, woe to you, your funeral is proclaimed. If you're somebody faking it before God, somebody who has falsehood in your heart, somebody whose sin is not admitted, somebody who stands before heaven and doesn't admit that their failures are there. God loves to forgive. God is not somebody who beats over the head people who have failed. Failure is normal. But when we stand up and say, well, I'm not really a failure at all. I look good. Look at me. I'm fine. We're faking it. And he comes to us and he says, listen, your worship, it's not worship at all. It's just ashes under the altar. You're just another aerial, and I've seen millions of them across the history of the world. People who say they worship God, people who, in the words of Isaiah, acknowledge me with their lips, their mouths, but their hearts are far from me. Where's your heart this morning? Where is your heart this morning? Join me in prayer.